0: Welcome to another episode of the Equestrian Hub podcast. Tonight's guest is Laurie Lerman. Thanks for coming on, Laurie. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I was up at your place the other day, beautiful farm at Peat's Ridge on the central coast of New South Wales, and uh, it was blowing a gale, it was freezing cold, and it was a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, you know, it's almost five o'clock, and uh, you are out there Working a, a nice thoroughbred of yours, uh, you know. Tell us a little bit about that horse that I saw you there. Nice, nice black, uh, strong type.
1: Mm, he is. He's a beautiful, beautiful horse. He's a he's an off the track thoroughbred, and um, he was big gamble when I bought him, Charlie. I actually bought him off the internet without meeting him first, and that was something I swore I would never do. <laughs> Uh, he was he was in, at the time I bought him, so I've had him three years and he was living in drought in Toowoomba and he had nothing to eat in the paddock and he'd been greatly reduced in price because the girl just needed to get rid of him. So uh, he just kept coming back to me. Every time I'd, I'd he played on my mind. He was one of those horses that just was easy on the eye and I liked his movement when I saw the videos of him and she'd had a lot of people come through and look at him and then she came back to me and said well you seem to have been the most genuine person what are your intentions I will reduce him to this price for you so boom he arrived on a truck and we met for the first time so yeah he's lovely he's um he's he can be a little bit hot still he uh he thinks he's out there going to the racetrack every time we go out. I think so. He's perfect at home, always.
0: <laughs> well, that's uh, yeah. No, you like them to like them to have a little bit of uh, a go about them, and uh, certainly being a thoroughbred, you know, you you're a bit worried if uh, if they don't have a bit of go. Now yeah, you've definitely. got a a long long connection with the thoroughbreds. Uh, you know, I always hear I've seen you know some lovely photos of racehorses in your house and. Tell us, tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up and how you got into you know how you got into thoroughbreds.
1: Mm, that's a really interesting story because <clears throat> it was a long, long time ago, and it was I was a crazy uh, horse crazy girl. Every time I saw a horse, there's a horse, there's a horse. We'd be driving somewhere in the car. I grew up in the country in Taree.
0: Were you? Were you? Was your family and-
1: horsey? No, no, we weren't. They weren't horsey. Uh, mum had had. Mum had grown up on a property out at Mitchell's Island, and mm. she had, at different stages, had access access to horses. But there was no one in my family that would, I'd say was an avid horse rider. Uh, but I had the fever for mm. them, and God. I did. I couldn't. Um, <clears throat> I would have walked over hot coals to get myself a ride on a horse. So I decided that the best way, because we we weren't resourced to have horses either, Um, very much a middle-class family, working class, and so I thought, well, there's a whole bunch of horses at the local racetrack and so I'll just take myself down to the local racetrack and I'll get myself a job and then I get to see horses every day. So I did that at age 11. I was a bit cheeky and I started just cleaning out stables in the afternoons after school. Uh, I did that for a couple of months. Um, And then an older man uh, from the racetrack approached me and he said to me, how much is that bloke over there paying you to do that work for him? And I said, well, he doesn't pay me anything. And he said, well, if you come and work for me, I will pay you. And, of course, I thought all my Christmases had come at once because (laughs) here I am surrounded by horses uh, fulfilling my needs and now I'm going to get paid for it. So that then meant I had a commitment before and after school and I, I reckon I only worked for him for maybe three more months or something. It wasn't very long and he came out one morning with the horse tacked up and every time he'd he'd walk up behind me I'd walk away and he said stop still and stop walking away from me I said well where are you trying to go and he said over to you so you can get on and I said what and he said don't think you're going to work for me and not ride them and so of course next level of dreams coming true in terms of that because I had never envisaged that I'd be riding these sensational animals they were just They were the most magnificent creatures I'd ever seen in my life. So I was 12 years old and I started riding track work. And (laughs) that, yeah, I know, it was just, it was insane. That was in the 1970s and there were no other women on the racetrack. There were, um, at that stage, the Taree racetrack was on the Pacific Highway. So it was a bit of a treacherous place if anybody left the gate open Uh, there were a couple of horses that that had untimely ends by getting out the gate. None of of the ones from our stables, but um, they connected with trucks and that was pretty horrible. Uh, And then they moved the racetrack up to the Bushland Drive um, position that it sits in still today, and it was much safer and uh, seemed to get bigger. There were more people around and there were more stables and uh then there were a couple of other women that appeared, but they were the wives of people that um, were riding track work or the girlfriends of the people that were riding track work. So in all of my time there, I was the only woman on the racetrack. And that came with its own set of um special rules,
0: well, if you course, like. like. Well, how could you how could you expect a woman to be able to ride a horse? You know, they they uh they don't yeah. have the skills and the strength necessary to ride horses.
1: That's exactly what the predominant um, thought pattern was, especially from the AJC officials. And it didn't take much at the time for me to be riding onto the horse and have, uh, there was one particular official that would stand there some mornings and he on the entry to the track and he'd just put his hand up in front of me and say, Holt, you can't ride here today. And I'd say to him, my response was usually, well, what do you mean? And he goes, no, you're a girl. Yes, well, I know that. But what's that got to do with me riding? Well, we had a complaint about you. And then I'd say, well, what was the complaint? And they'd say, he'd say, we don't have to tell you. And then I'd ask him who made the complaint and he'd say, we don't have to tell you that either. And then I'd say, when can I ride again? And he'd say, well, we'll let you know. So sometimes it was a one-day thing. Um, The the guy that I was riding for would always go around and see him and sort it out. Uh, At one stage, it was a six-month ban, and
0: I still don't know why. Um, You probably overtook someone on the track and made them feel uh, bad for going slow. (laughs) There was one particular male
1: jockey there that did not like me one bit, and I think it was actually... I think I rode past him and his horse spun around, and I think I upset him. That's the only, the only rational conclusion that I could come to at the time. And I'm pretty sure that he was the serial complainant. Um but he, anyway, my my um my boss, as I referred to him, um, believed in me so much. He he moved the stables. There were some extra stables being built right at the back of the racetrack. And he moved our stables, and then he built Um, a temporary racetrack out of sawdust and on the slow work mornings I would ride the horses this was over the six month period that I wasn't allowed on the big racetrack and on the fast work mornings I would ride the horses probably about a 600 meter distance up to the main racetrack I'd hop off I'd have to leg a male rider on board and watch them ride the horse fast work and then I'd get back on and ride the horse back down to the stables and finish grooming and feeding and all the things that you do. So it was a frustrating time, uh, but it was an interesting time as well because there was at that stage no such thing as anti-discrimination. And I don't think I even knew what the
0: word discrimination was. Were you um, probably were, I, you, were you missing any school at this point or were you still going in between shifts No I was I was still going to school so we
1: were close enough to the racetrack that I could go there in the mornings and and in fact I was close enough to my high school that I would get home at at um, I don't know 20 to 9 and jump in the shower get dressed and I could leave home at the time the school bell rang and get into my classes on time so okay. It was pretty easy. It was pretty easy. I think that's left me with a hangover. I get uncomfortable being early for things and hanging around waiting.
0: <laughs> I, I know that it used to be getting good. there when
1: the action starts.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. besides there being, um, you know, no, not much equality around the tracks. I'm sure there were probably no back protectors uh, or anything like that back in those days.
1: I remember when we were um, made to wear hard hats for the first time, and That was just, wow, we've got to wear these now all the time. I think I was choosing to wear one most of the times, but the most precious memories I have were actually when it was really wet and we would truck the horses out to Old Bar Beach and we would ride our track work out at Old Bar Beach when it was too wet to go on the track. And that I love the hat on because you just had the wind blowing through your hair and that sense of freedom and uh, that ceased when we had to wear hard hats but a body vest or a protector what what was that um i bought one last year for the very first time in my life charlie so So, yeah
0: that was pretty crazy
1: yeah it's it's a beautiful part of the
0: world up there isn't it uh you know around old bar and you know i i think you're definitely lucky there's not not many people you know, well, luck. You know, I'm sure there wasn't a luck in lot of luck involved in all mm-hmm. the hard work you were putting in, uh, but just being in that area uh, where it's just oh, so, okay. such yeah. a beautiful part of the world to ride on, and then just being, I guess, the right place at the right time, and and meeting this, yeah. uh, this boss, as you called him, who really believed in you. Oh, he was wonderful. Did you have, did you did. have any other he... sort of mentors at the time, or or what were some things you learnt from from your boss?
1: Oh, look, I think one the the way that he stayed calm each time I was um, told I couldn't ride, he'd just sort of shrug his shoulders and go, oh, okay, well, I'll go around and I'll sort it. But I never saw the man lose his temper or raise his voice. Uh, So dealing with conflict in a completely new way, I suppose, uh, I wasn't witness to the conversation, so I could never see how he resolved them, but I was always amazed that we found a way around it you know i'd get really frustrated and go that's just not fair and he'd go we'll work it out so i i guess i i learned how to stay calm and look for different ways instead of just running into roadblocks and going well that's it and throwing my hands in the air mm. so i think that's really helped in carrying me forward with my life and my career and just situations I've found myself in subsequently. I also, the thing about this man was that he was an SP bookie um, and, of course, they were never legal. So there were days that I'd get a phone call from him and he would have been picked up by the local police and be locked up for the night and he'd say, well, you're in charge. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe I was 14 or 15, so... For the next couple of days, I need you to do everything with the horses, including, you know, like I mean everything. So I won't be there. Okay. Um, So that was kind of interesting. And I think learning not to judge people, I mean, he was such a kind um, and believing man. I learned the value of money because every time he pulled his wallet out to pay me, my eyes just about popped out because I'd never seen money like it. And... I think that taught me not to be a gambler. So as much as I love the races and I love the horses and all the rest of it, I'm still not what I, if I go to the races now, I might have a little flutter and Melbourne Cup's usually compulsory for me to have a little flutter. But otherwise, you know, it certainly didn't turn me into a gambler because I hung around a racetrack, which I think was one of my grandparents' concerns they were very upset with my parents for allowing me to hang around with such unsavoury characters at that stage. That's
0: right, working for uh, But,
1: oh, absolutely. And, you know, some of the other people on the racetrack as well. I mean, there were people that probably had checkered pasts, but they were, you know, I, I still say that that gave me a better education than going to university did because it was the school of life. Mm. And... um you know, I was fortunate to have the freedom to to be able to get out of bed and, um, you know, go to the racetrack. I learned to drive early because the minute we hit the precinct of the racetrack, they'd put me in the driver's seat and go, go on, drive. So, you know, like a country kid on a farm, I suppose, I got those experiences. And, um, yeah, it was it was
0: very enlightening in a lot of ways. It's so important that uh that staying calm in a in a conflict situation, you know, it 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 rarely, it rarely helps to yell sometimes, but rarely. Uh and and was he and it's like that with horses as well. Uh was he like that with his horses, you know, quite calm <laughs> and consistent. Mm. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I um I didn't appreciate it then because I was too young, obviously, and we know so much more about horses and uh, how they sense your emotions and all the rest of it. But certainly he was a great role model from that. Um, I do recall when I lost my temper once with a horse that wasn't in his stable. So there was one stage that, like, he usually had four horses, so I'd ride his four horses for track work in the mornings. But there were some mornings after a few years when um, people were used to me being there that I actually got asked by our trainers to ride their horses when their standard uh, track work people didn't turn up or were detained otherwise or sometimes they'd get injured. <laughs> and uh, and I do remember um, one particular situation where a horse was not standing still for me to put a bridle on her and I was getting a bit frustrated and I might have yelled or something, but I do remember that the trainer came in and absolutely barreled me uh, about the way that I spoke to the horse and don't ever um, speak to the horse like that, especially when you're doing something as sensitive as putting the bridle on. This has to be a very kind experience. And so there was I, I also just picked up that general respect for the animals. So what they knew and what they thought of. I mean, there were some really wise people there. Um, like I said, life's university. So mm. uh, and and all of that's coming back to me now because I had a long break away from the horses and, um, you know, career and all the rest of it. Eventually I did get a lady jockey's licence. And, and what, what age were you me. able to get that? I was 15. I was 15 when I got that. And that was weird because I didn't apply for it, I didn't think anything of it, but my boss just went and signed me up for it and sort of it was a card that was written out that was kind of like, I don't know, just a purple piece of cardboard that had a number and a signature from the guys from the AJC just saying that I had a lady jockey's licence. So nothing like what would be required today. and of course, it was there was no way that you could ride against the men either, because there was there was a separate class. It was almost like a circus event at the races. Come and see the lady jockeys ride. And we were referred to as joquettes. So we were wow. that in itself was just stupid because the joquettes brand of underwear were around at that point as well. So it was like, well, what are you talking about? We're called joquettes, that's ridiculous. Uh, and, and of course, that wasn't the only rule change because um, I'd need to convert it to kilos for today's... Um, we
0: talk, we can, you can audience. give it to us in stone. I'm guessing it was stone. Yeah, so
1: it was, the, the starting weight for a lady jockey was eight and a half stone. And the reasoning for that was because, as you alluded to right at the very beginning, we would never be strong enough if we were the same weight as the male jockey's to be able to handle a horse and certainly nothing, you know, like the the lovely creatures that we have that are around the 600-plus kilo weight today. So heavier weight, limited races because they only happened occasionally when they decided to put one on the agenda and um, treated like a bit of a, a carnival spectacle, you know. So, yeah, that was, it was all very different. And it was all before anti-discrimination laws came in in 1978 in New South Wales at least.
0: And so how long did you stay being a jockey or did you, um, when you finished school, you just, did, you, did you go on and uh, keep working at the racetrack?
1: No, I went to university, Charlie, and that made me have to leave Taree. So uh, that started me on a completely different um, pathway, if you like. And, um and I didn't get back into the race course because the one thing that I did leave the racetrack believing was there was no future for a female on the racetrack mm. so the conclusion was it was far better for me to pursue the formal education that I didn't particularly enjoy but but well, that must I have do it anyway
0: a tough you know, idea or or realisation to come to at the time?
1: Well, it was very sad because I loved doing what I was doing and the decision to withdraw from that environment meant that I was going back into a horseless existence again for whatever period of time that would be unless I wanted to go to a riding school and hop on a pony in a riding school which I did try a few times and I just couldn't stand it.
0: Yeah, it's not the same. But oh, there's no. no get up, there's no get up and go, take the bridle and have a bit of adrenaline in there.
1: No, no, no. And the riding style, because remember that I learned to ride track work. So I learned to ride with my stirrups six inches long and my knees up around my ears, standing up on the back of a horse basically and, and up over the neck, particularly on fast work mornings. Um, so even when I was doing a slow work morning with a trot and a canter, I didn't ride with a long stirrup. And so going then to a riding school and sitting in, they usually had stock saddles with those huge pommels on the front, and I used to look at them and go, oh, my God, what kind of tortuous contraption is that? Mm. Um so, yeah, I wasn't comfortable in the saddles. I, I couldn't find my seat properly in it. And then you, it, in my mind, it didn't matter how well you rode, the horse knew where it was going to walk, trot and canter home. So that was all predetermined.
0: <laughs> so uh, what did you end up studying at university and, and where did that lead oh, you? New-
1: well, this is, again, a sign of my age because the, the career options were very limited for women. And so the choices were you can be a dental nurse, you can be uh, a nurse, or you could become a, uh, you, know, you could do a hairdressing course, of course, um, or you could become a teacher. So I actually pursued education and um, got a Bachelor of education in secondary teaching. And I didn't like it. I actually taught for 12 months in the education system, and I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the environment. The one thing that I really didn't enjoy was being around teachers. <laughs> so that was I <laughs> I, uh, I kind of whilst I was going to uni, I was working in restaurants a lot. So I had hospitality in my background and um, very quickly I found that TAFE valued people with an educational background more than the education department did. So I switched across to working in the TAFE system and I was teaching small-scale catering and uh, some subjects in the commercial catering areas. So it was a completely different environment to what I had learned on the racetrack, uh, and you could just about flip it on its head, Um, and from that, I went into the corporate world and I worked in human resource management. And that was before there was any formal degree in human resource management. So when I first became a human resource manager and you'd say to people, I'm a human resource manager, people would go, what's that? <laughs> what does that mean you do? Uh, so that was that was kind of... Um, that was interesting, and of course, that field has developed over the years to um, a significant part of any decent b- business, and um, justifiably so, because the work that is done in that field is um, the backbone of any good business. I think oh, I might have biased.
0: And yeah. what was what was some of the things you know working in HR uh, that you found, you know, you you gained from. Working on the racetrack, oh. if there was anything, and um, oh, there's yeah, what are some lessons? Everything, like-
1: everything I learned from working on the racetrack, and there's one that really stands out in my mind. Um, and I go back to this boss, and, it, and it's one of the horses you looked at the other day. This beautiful big chestnut horse called it, King Kana. Hmm. and when he first um came to the stables, my boss had purchased him from the yearling sales. And I looked at this horse and I looked at the shape of his head, and I don't know why I thought I knew anything about a horse because of the shape of his head. But I looked at him and I went, that horse has got a really bad temper. That horse is really cranky. And I don't know what he was thinking buying that horse. Um, I've gone to go into the, into the yard so the horses were stable but they had a yard that they could come out into. And I went to go into it and the thing dropped its head and it bucked and it ran and, ran around and... I remember I, I didn't have much to do with it the first day that I was there, but I came home and I said to my mother, oh, my God, he's made a huge mistake buying that horse. It's cranky, it's this, it's that, you know, it's like it's and it's going to always be cranky because it's got this really high forehead and, um and again, I still, I don't know, I might have been 13. I really don't know why I thought that was a thing. Um And I remember my mum saying to me, well, you know, this is the test for you because you actually have to work with that animal. And so she said, why would you treat him any differently to any other horse? And there were a couple of things that that I learned in working with that particular horse because I did treat him like the others that were in the stables and eventually they were all my big Labradors. They were like puppy dogs. They'd follow me around and they were just magnificent. So... One thing that happened was that one afternoon um, mum was mum had come to the racetrack to help me and she was rugging this particular horse but it was dark and she couldn't see which horse she had with her and he was being very affectionate and she was saying to me, oh, you know, like, oh, he's beautiful, he's this, he's that, and I said, mum, you do realise you're in with the king, don't you? Because <laughs> he had in the past been prone to biting. And um, she went, what? Oh, my gosh. Oh, no, I didn't know that. So... I I took that as a, oh, we're having a breakthrough with this horse. He's getting better. But I think the day that I knew that I'd really sort of crossed the line with him was um, I was riding him and, and he started to falter as I was riding him. And I looked down and I saw blood coming from a nostril. And I got off him and I walked him all the way back and I just remember crying and saying, please don't die, please don't die. Oh, my gosh, you know, I had seen a horse die from a, a bleed and it was horrendous and I'll never forget it. And um, and so I realised the bond that I'd developed with that particular horse. And what I learned from that was just that I had been consistently kind. I had been consistent in the way that it, he received discipline as much as the others did. So it was just I didn't treat him any differently. And when I started working with people, you know, sometimes you meet people that just don't like you. They just go, I don't care what you say about her, she's a bitch or, you know, whatever. They just take an instant dislike. And whether that's um, based on they've had an experience with somebody that looks like you that they didn't like or whether they just make that first impressions assumption, I don't know, but it's irrational. And what I've found over the years, because I also viewed off into the training side of things, so the Bachelor of Education qualification did help me, um, was that to be, again, consistent and non-emotional with people and when they didn't like me, I would just kill them with kindness and I would win them over, just as I had with the horse. And I, I will still refer to that as one of the most powerful experiences that I had as a young kid in learning to deal with humans. Yeah. I've had humans throw bigger tantrums than the horses sometimes. So
0: yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's such a good lesson to learn. And uh, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm certainly yeah. not religious, but I think even Jesus was talking about that being being nice, killing your enemies with kindness back in the absolutely. day. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I I absolutely you know believe that that's the case. And it's yeah, and S- th- still powerful.
0: When you were you moved into the corporate world, and and did you have a a roadmap, or did you have a goal at the time, you know, as to where you wanted to be and and go, or, or did, were you just you know, going, playing it playing it as it came? Charlie, I played it as it came. Doors opened for me,
1: and I would never have thought that a little girl from Tari could have done the things that I have done throughout my career, and. Even when I first started my university career, I could never envisage the places that would open, just the opportunities that were presented. were They've been staggering over the years. And so, you know, I've had this career in human resource management. I've had this career in corporate training. I've worked as a consultant, and the work as the consultant was mostly in the oil and gas industry. So I've travelled the world as what I would term an industrial tourist. Um, Sometimes I'd pinch myself and say, how did a little girl from Tari find herself here?
0: So what Um, what does an industrial tourist do?
1: Well, you get to go to these magnificent places to deliver training workshops or work as a consultant with people. And you take a few extra days either side to go and have a look at what's going on in the place. So Egypt is a classic, I suppose. Um, Delivered some workshops for a very large oil and gas industry-based company in Egypt. And so, oh, well, let's fly in a few days earlier and go and see the Pyramids of Giza and take a trip down the Nile and do all that sort of stuff. Um, Trinidad and Tobago, Mm. brilliant places in the West Indies to go. Um, West Africa cameroon um go and visit um the uh volcano that went off there 20 years ago and look at the lava flow and look at oh. what that did to the landscape so yeah just phenomenal phenomenal stuff go to houston and go shopping yeah um, i used to shop in america more than i shopped in australia mm.
0: there's such a good range i'm actually yes. I'm wearing it i'm currently wearing a jacket uh, from America I've got a good friend Jackie Gilbertson over in Maryland and uh, she always finds me uh, you know some fantastic clothes and um, oh yeah and they're of, so
1: uh, affordable
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah if you and had with uh, exchange rate if you had uh, you know if you were going to go on holiday uh, you know is there any of those places that would jump out at you that where you'd like to go back to or anywhere that you would want to <sighs> go that you haven't been
1: I think I've been just about everywhere I want to go in the world. Uh, one or two places that I don't care to go back to. I had a bit of a scary situation in Batam off. It's an island off Indonesia, off, um, or it's an Indonesian island that you get to from ferry ride from Singapore, and it's about a forty-five minute ferry ride. After he boarded from Singapore to the island of Batam, it was made famous by the Cornice plane that dropped an engine um, after takeoff in Singapore a few years back now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's a hub of manufacturing, and um, they do boat building and they do pipe building and a whole lot of heavy industry is located there. And we were doing work for a manufacturing company that was associated with oil and gas, and we were coming in and out of there quite frequently. And I got there one day and um, there are some pretty shady practices in terms of paying government officials to get your people in and out in some countries. And what we weren't told was that this particular company had stopped greasing the palms of the government officials. Mm. So when I arrived, they took my passport took me away from um, where I would normally go through and get picked up by a driver on the other side and said, come with me, and I had to sit in a room. And I sat in a room on my own for three hours with no passport. And I remember looking around for a secret camera and thinking, is this like the equivalent of border control for Australia yeah. or what's going on here? Um, and I nobody came near me. I did not get any information the whole time I was sitting there. And then they just came back in, handed me my passport and said, yeah, you can go now. So, of course, my driver had left and I had to get out the other side and um, find my way to my hotel and all the rest of it. And then I had a couple of other colleagues that were flying in um, on different flights and we were arriving at different times. And one of the guys got there again about three hours after we anticipated his arrival. And... He said to me, I will never acknowledge that I know you again. And I went, what are you talking about? And he said, i got customs. They showed me, they photocopied your passport and they showed me a photo of you and said, do you know this woman? And I said, yes. And they took me and sat me in a room for three hours. (laughs) So... They were, that was their little act of terror. It was all fine and we did the job and um, came did home they, again. But yeah, While
0: you were waiting in the room for three hours, were they uh, just, you know, organising some money from, uh, you know, higher up or?
1: It, I think that's highly likely.
0: I think that's highly likely that that's what they did. Yes,
1: I, that was never confirmed to me, but certainly that was my suspicion. So, um, yeah, that, that, was, that was kind of strange. I mean, they were... There are some places that I've been to where you you got to um, oh, this, the transformational change that I saw in a couple of countries, and and one of those countries was Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did a lot of work down in the southern part of Vietnam, and just the amount of the roads that were developed in the in the time that I went in and out of there over a period of three years was phenomenal like we talk about transformational change you could almost see it happening in front of your eyes and then i think the other place that was really remarkable was azerbaijan and the city yeah. of baku
0: baku yeah
1: yeah and the first time i went into that city charlie it was uh there's a little russian built car called a lada that was a little square boxy thing and mm-hmm. The roads were terrible. They were like you dodged the potholes going in from the airport. It was quite a long drive. There was nothing pretty about the place, uh, a lot of shaly ground. The oil comes up out of the ground in this place. There's so much of it. It just pops up out of the ground. And so a lot of people have put those nodding donkeys, the um, pumps, in their yards and they just pump the oil up themselves. All right. And so... Um, the first time that I went there, I just had this impression of this dry, dusty, horrible place on the edge of the Caspian Sea, which is ugly and dirty because it's at the end of the um, is it the Volta that from Russia, and they throw all their rubbish into yeah. it, so it was quite polluted. And I came away from it going, mm, yeah, pretty primitive, not so great. The next time I went back, not much had changed in the airport itself, but. I could see changes in in the actual city. And the difference was, first time I was there, all these um, little Russian larder cars and the odd 7-class or 7-series Mercedes or 7, yes, 7-class and then the S-class in the, sorry, S-class Mercedes and 7s in the BMWs. Yeah. And the odd Porsche. And I'd go, why would you drive a Porsche in this place where these giant potholes would eat it? Um, But Over the next couple of years when I was going in and out, the whole ratio flipped and it suddenly became spot the ladder. Where are they now? Because everybody was driving around in new and luxury cars. The roads had transformed into six-lane highways going in both directions to the airport. And you know that was basically the oil money? Oh, my gosh, yes. It's all oil money. It's all oil money. It was just phenomenal. They had architects come in and relight all the buildings. The architecture in that city is amazing. They rebuilt the entire um, terminal for the airport and it is world-class in every sense of the word. It's gone from being a shed, basically. Uh, And, yeah, the wealth in the city is very well distributed and it's an amazing city now, Mm. amazing. So I would definitely go back to Baku. I'd love to go back and see it again a few years post that and see how much it's grown um, and changed yet again. I'm not surprised um, that
0: there's plenty of oil money around there. I remember studying World War II history at school, and I I, be- I believe that Hitler was actually trying to get down to Baku and and take the Azerbaijan yeah. area because he he knew there was just so much oil and and wealth uh, to be had. Well, having. its history says
1: uh, its history says that quite a few other countries actually succeeded because it seemed to have been a target of takeovers over the years. Everybody wanted a piece of it, and um, yeah, it was. It was an amazing place to be and experience.
0: Well, you talk about uh, being, you know, studying, teaching, and being involved in training. Um, but I've met your husband, and I don't know if you, you've either done a really good job about getting him to where he is, or you're not very good at your job.
1: <laughs> He's a work in progress, I say, Charlie.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about how you met Brett. And um, and why are you still putting up with him after all these years?
1: Oh, that's that's a funny question, really. Brett and I go back; we predate history. We uh we were we met as children, and we our families were water skiing families, and so we sort of we had some interactions that I can remember from when we were oh, probably seven or eight years of age, maybe nine. Um, and they were boys mostly in his family and we were girls, so it was like, yeah, anyway, they were annoying. Um, we we then reconnected through ballroom dancing and we both attended the same ballroom dancing school from age 11 and uh, I have to say the Lerman boys were very good ballroom dancers. They were very good ballroom dancers. And, and this they... Is at This was in Taree. So we went to the Jack and Nell Wright School of Ballroom Dancing that was held at the Rowing Club in Taree every Thursday night. And uh, we did that for a few years. We went away to some festivals and um, competed. The whole school of dance would jump on buses and get taken to Newcastle or Tamworth or Armidale or wherever there was a competition going. And... um, so we did that for a number of years and then we sort of because I went off into horsey world and did my own thing, um, Brett stayed with the water skiing and my sister, in fact, was an avid water skier and she got into barefoot drags and ski racing and Brett was also into barefoot drags and ski racing. So we, Brett and I had, had a, a loose connection during our teen years, but um probably reconnected again. When I was at university, I remember he was with a group of people that came back to my parents' place for a barbecue and uh, I was home on university holidays. Of course, it's Christmas, I'm pretty well tanned. I think I was wearing a white cheesecloth dress or something and I walked through the house and he looked at my mother and looked back at me and looked at my mother and said to her, I'm going to marry that one day. (laughs) <laughs> you can tell he hasn't changed much, really, has he? That's
0: right. so,
1: <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's ancient. We had a bit of a, you know, we had a love hate relationship for a number of years, I suppose. So we'd get together, and then we wouldn't get together. And um, anyway, ultimately, here we are, married.
0: That's 150 right. 150 years right. It's, later. It's certainly a bit of a journey, you know. It's hard. It's hard work training those young cults. And yes. Yes. Uh, and now, yeah. and now you've um, you know, you moved, you've moved up to Pete's Ridge on the Central Coast. You know, tell mm-hmm. tell me how like how you came about that place, and you know, you you mentioned earlier about buying a horse sight unseen from, from off the internet. Oh my God, oh, you're giving gosh. me a heart attack just thinking about it. In saying that, I've done the same. Oh, I was, I was, it gave
1: me a heart attack too. Don't worry, I was. I was thought I was insane. What am I doing? Um, We lived in Sydney and um, we had pretty well established ourselves in Sydney. Brett was uh, still doing boats and skiing for a number of years and then he got into offshore powerboat racing. So we became a team and, um, and I was his team manager. So we we're competing in Australia, but we also competed um, in an international competition and were travelling in and out of Australia quite frequently to to compete in these boat races. So we had a boat based in Dubai and the boats, this this was called the XCAT World Series, and uh, over the time that we were with it, we got to race in Portugal in um, beautiful Qashqai that was um, have spoken of yeah um I go back to Portugal any day I love that place
0: yeah you need to go uh, back and add some Lusitanos.
1: I do need to go back and do the horsey experience because I did not get that i got the water and the boating experience and the wine experience um we we raced in Italy we raced in Switzerland we raced in China uh, and the Middle East so we raced a lot dubai abu dhabi and a place called fujera that is uh outside of uh it was three hours out of dubai but it's now about an hour and a half because they fixed up all the roads and built super highways out to that again oil money so um we did that and i was the team manager for a number of years but i i actually got breast cancer and I had to pull back on all of the activities I was doing and really focus on my health. And it took, it actually stole three years out of my life. And, of course, you get a lot of time to reflect when you're going through that soul-searching and you start looking at how many years you've used and what you've done and think about how many years you've got left. And I had a burning desire. I've always had a burning desire, in fact, to uh, have some retired thoroughbreds. And it was I I probably wanted that because I felt that I had this chapter of unfinished business because of what I went through on the racetrack, because women couldn't have an equal role. I always felt there was more that I could have done but didn't have the opportunity. So I had started talking about having a property and collecting some, uh, some off the tracks and probably I think the cancer experience really cemented that for me and I remember I I had chemotherapy the morning of the Melbourne Cup and I came home and I sat in my recliner lounge with my big furry rug over the top as I was prone to do after chemo sessions and I watched a young female jockey called Michelle Payne ride the Prince of Prince Dance that day and win and I had tears streaming down my face. I, I often cry when I go to the races just because I love the beauty of the horses and it, I find it really emotional, quite triggering. And so I, um, I remember just sitting there because my parents, like I said before, they weren't wealthy, but they really supported me in doing what I was doing with the horses back in my teen years and They had, in fact, sent me down to the Melbourne Cup to stay with friends. That was a big deal because only rich people flew in those days. And so I was put on the plane in Taree, sent to Sydney, had to change planes in Sydney and fly on to Melbourne. And I had friends, family friends from forever that picked me up and hosted me in Melbourne for a week. So we went to the Melbourne Cup and we went to Oaks Day and Again, I was just, I was absolutely taken by the beauty and the wonder and the fabulousness of these horses. I just could not believe how magnificent these were. I thought the horses I looked after were in great conditions, but I had never seen anything as magnificent as the ones I saw on the Melbourne Cup and around the Melbourne Racing Carnival. And so, of course, here I was a girl, but there was no girl riding in the Melbourne Cup back then. There were, there were not even female strappers at the races back in those days even though I knew there were a lot of women working around stables. So um, I sat and cried because it was exactly 40 years from the day that I had been at Melbourne Cup until Michelle Payne won on Prince of Penzance. And I, I just remember thinking, okay, I'm highly emotional because I haven't been well. I've just had chemotherapy. I'm not sure what that means in terms of how I fight this disease. But I made myself a promise that... I was definitely going to pursue my dream and I was going to collect some thoroughbreds and I was going to live on a property. And I think I pretty much decided that the the race boat days were getting near to an end and it was time for my husband to move over and let me do what I really wanted to do. So that unleashed the passion and I started talking about it pretty much from the time I got well again. And... Then we had our eldest daughter move to the Central Coast and she had our first grandbaby. So that signed and sealed the deal. That made it easier to sell um, to my husband, who wasn't, I'd have to say, wasn't overly keen on moving to a farm because all he could see was work and all I could see was fun because I had just visions of me riding horses. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, we started looking. We had quite a long search and, of course, we bought a farm that wasn't set up for horses, didn't we, because we love a challenge. And we, the property that we purchased was a, a flower farm. It was um, a native flower farm for many, many years. But the topography looked like it was something we could deal with and it had a really great aspect being north-facing and it was on top of the mountain. That was always one of my criterion. I've always said to Brett, I have to be on the mountain, not
0: in the valley. Yeah, so it won't be too wet. you the top of the mountain.
1: <laughs> oh, no. the last couple of years with the rain have challenged that. Let me tell you, <laughs> we've had some water. Boy, we've had some water. Um, I can't imagine what it's been like for people down in the valleys because we I had sponginess under my feet with some of the weather that we've been through. So anyway, we just came on to it. The place had been a bit neglected, Charlie, when we first saw it, and but we both had this vision for what it could become. And so it's it's slowly but surely becoming that vision. It's and When I say slowly, obviously I don't have my arena in place yet, although the pad that it will sit on is definitely carved out and waiting. So we're getting closer to it. and um, And
0: I do now have four horses so yes well, you, um, you can't you know I'm one needs drink. a friend, and then if you take two away then you like if you have three yeah. then that one's on its own. so it needs a friend you know that's exactly right they all need friends yes yeah so some, um what are some recommendations yeah. or advice you'd have because i i deal with a lot of people that are getting back into writing after uh you know sometimes a significant break and we're mm. very you know um, you know, gung-ho, confident riders, uh, like let's say in their teen years and now are coming mm. back to it um, and are just trying to, re- re- you know, get that muscle memory working again, um, but mm. operating from, you know, maybe slightly different horses or bodies. What's what's some advice you'd have for people in that sort of situation? Uh,
1: my advice would be that no matter how good you think you were, When you first get onto it, while there is some memory of what you had experienced before, you really should get yourself a decent coach and start with a few good lessons just to reinforce because you may have had bad habits. There were certainly no coaches around that I was aware of. Um, And, of course, my writing style was very different to what I'm trying to do now. So, yeah, get and and also get somebody to video you so you can see yourself because somebody can tell you what you're doing, but unless you actually see it for yourself, sometimes that doesn't sink in. So that would be the first two things that I would suggest people do, and it doesn't matter whether you're riding a pony or whether you're riding a Clydesdale or uh, whatever might be in the lovely Lusitano Mm. um, or a thoroughbred if you're lucky enough. And you just need to make sure that you're not starting with bad habits and really entrenching those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That would be my
1: advice.
0: Full full support of that, uh, everyone. Uh, I remember when, probably not the first time I met you, but the first time I gave you a lesson and I sort of got a bit of backstory about the long layoff and about how you're, you know, a very experienced track rider at a young age. I remembered. Mm. I seem to remember changing instead of trying to get you to ride how or what would be normal for show jumping or dressage, whatever would mm. be like. I got you up into that two point position to begin with for yeah. a fair bit of it because that was yeah. what was so much more comfortable. Before trying to change things, Um and I, I and I surprised it. you
1: because I actually held that for quite a period of time. Quite a period, it I
0: yeah Uh, most most little most people i get to do that oh no not two point for so long
1: yeah no that was i could have done the entire lesson two point i think so yeah and confidence wasn't my problem definitely was not my problem i had so much faith in the horses and in my own ability because i knew what i'd been through and done in the past um i guess i didn't account for the long gap in between but um it does come back to you. It does come back to you. And I I'm certainly uh very comfortable now in a dressage saddle. I couldn't even sit in a dressage saddle. Um I I was wanting um I was wanting to ride in a training saddle or like a, a jumping saddle because they had less restrictions around um less restrictions in in where your legs went and I felt like I could get my legs up a bit higher so that's been a bit of a journey for me to learn to just extend those stirrups and um, hold my legs where they should be because dressage of course is now my chosen thing and that's you couldn't get two more right different riding styles
0: yeah that's that's right and I believe you're getting some help from uh, former podcast guest Scott Brody in that regard
1: Yes, I am getting some help from Scott and he's been very um, encouraging and affirming, if you like. And I've had a few different coaches over time and it's interesting how you just gel with some people, Charlie. Um, some, Some coaches want to tell you everything you're doing wrong and you come away going, oh, I'm so broken, I'm just never going to make this. I'm a complete disaster, that's it, I'll sell the horses and sell the property and sell the, you know. Um, the first time I rode for Scott or, with you know, with him as a coach, he did very similar to you, what's the history, what's the horse done, what do you want to do? Um, okay, get out there and show me what you can do and show me ride, right, do this, do that. And I remember halfway through the first lesson that I ever had with him, he said to me, you can ride. You can actually ride. You've got this. We just need to refine you a little bit, you know, and that was I just remember that being a big breakthrough because I'd almost lost confidence in some ways because people had wanted to tell you everything that you're not doing right. And so I felt that probably the timing of meeting Scott was really very good for me and very effective in terms of um, encouraging me to continue. So um yeah. He's he's got a, as you do, Charlie, he's got a wonderful way of handling horses and a wonderful way of speaking with them. And um they respond really well to him. And of course I appreciate that as much as anybody. So
0: yeah. No, it hel- it helps it's, a lot. It's always hard finding finding the right the right balance i think judy Fasher and, and colleen brooke when i was doing my coach training would always talk about the the compliment sandwich you know a compliment then a you know some constructive criticism then another compliment uh, uh, uh. sometimes and it's it not depends, a compliment usually, sandwich usually usually when i'm yes. taking my mother or my father it's more like an insult sandwich um but if you're paying me you know you'll yes. get the compliment sandwich
1: Right, okay. Well, in the corporate world, we call that the shit sandwich <laughs> or the shit cookie. <laughs> so, you know, you get you get a compliment up front, just grease them up, and then you give them the hard punching stuff in the middle and then you finish off with a compliment. And um, I, I don't know if that's something that's made Australians very resistant to feedback in a lot of ways, but uh, if you try to give somebody a compliment, you know, they look at you like, what's coming next? Yeah, so yeah. You gotta be careful with that one. You know, what are you greasing me up for? Is that just to let me down? So, yeah, that's uh, that's something I deal with at the moment because one of the things that I do still do in my work is um, teach people how to deliver feedback in a corporate environment. So good, bad or indifferent, um, what are the tools and the techniques for that? And it's something we avoid. Very much.
0: What's, this is something that's always on my mind. Uh, you know, as I as I deal with staff and clients and some friends, uh, colleagues, you know, what is what are some uh, you know, a, a quick what's a quick tip on how to deliver better feedback.
1: And the same thing that you need to do when you're working with your horses, you must stay non emotional and you deal with the behaviour, not with the person so you can't make it personal Mm. you can't use terms like you always do this or you never do that or blah 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 you've got to be able to think of it in terms of the behavior that the person's exhibiting because the bottom line is I can change my behavior I can choose my behavior and I can think about it and I can change it and the same thing we do with the horses is you know we need to We need to get them to change their behaviours sometimes. So we work on getting the required behaviour and then we will compliment them on that. So if we get emotional and we lose it, the horse doesn't respond well. If we get emotional in the workplace, um, people will know if you're going to give them negative feedback. A lot of people get angry and it's like, oh, I need to speak to you now. Um, we, We should be indifferent. It's always... It's always a pleasure to give positive feedback to people. Like, I've got some great news. However, you shouldn't be able to tell beforehand that you're going to get your butt kicked. So um, it's all about making it non-personalised and just focusing on the behaviour. And I go back to the same thing in terms of feedback with people. It's no different. I ask once, I ask twice, and then I tell. And I do the same with my horses when I'm training them. I ask. I ask. Now I'm telling you. So it's like we go forward, little squeeze, go forward, little squeeze, go forward, bang, I'm kicking you now. What you know, you know what I'm saying in Absolutely. terms of that. I, I so, say ask
0: nicely um, twice all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always ask, ask, tell in. Sometimes, except with a sometimes I'll
0: um, say with a mare, ask nicely thrice.
1: Ah, uh, see, I don't have any mares. So
0: I don't know that rule. <laughs> okay, probably best to keep it that Something. way. Well, yeah. I know I've been. been Although well,
1: they say, if you get a good mare, oh, they if
0: you get no, a good they're mare, tough. they're better than any gelding. I'm. Mm. Uh, I'm enjoying riding. riding a few mares at the good mares at the moment. Um, but I, I know I've been keeping you a while, Laurie. Uh, I've really enjoyed. You know, it's always good, even with people you know. You just always learn so much more about them you know when you, you really uh do, take a deep dive into into their journey and their life and um i think it's fantastic a lot of people are going to get a lot out of that i just got one final question to uh pester you with before uh-huh. i go and and that's you know if there was anything you could change in your career or your life what would it be and why
1: it's, it's a really tough question charlie because Everything that I have done, every experience that I have endured uh, has built the person that I am today. It's like the fabric of my life, if you like. And so obviously your entire life's not all a bed of roses. You know, there are some tough times and there are some, there's a couple of career choices that I made that, you know, like if you asked me today, are you glad you did a degree in teaching? I'd go, well, no, I would never choose to do that again. Yet it paved the way for this fantastic career that I've had. Uh, So when I say what would I do differently, what choices would I make? You know, there was an old bloke that worked on the racetrack called Clive Burdekin. He would be long gone. Lovely little old man. And um, when I was actually going down to the Melbourne Cup, he said to me, "Laurie, think big, think big." <laughs> How good. And I didn't, I didn't, you did. you and didn't I didn't back, back, back that horse. <laughs> I didn't back it, and it won.
0: <laughs> it was a Bart, Bart Cummings trainer, didn't he?
1: He did, I believe. It was a Bart Cummings trained horse, and um, and he was a magnificent horse as well. So, but I I fell in love with some other. I think it was a big chestnut in the in the race that year and decided I knew better, and um, that was really disappointing. But in terms of the career choices, I don't know that I'd do anything differently because it's just been the variety has been amazing, and when I reflect on it, I'm glad that I've been able to do some things. I wasn't the traditional mother uh, quite a lot of the time when I was overseas, you know, like I lost my passport in America at one stage and wound up being there for three weeks longer than I needed to be. That was pretty scary. Uh, there were a few weddings and functions that I missed out on because I was travelling back from overseas gigs. So I missed out on that sort of stuff. And I have to say um, my husband's been nothing but supportive of the very long reign that I've had to travel and do the things that I've needed to do. So no regrets. One of that's my motto, start die wondering.
0: That's right. Well, yeah. right. I everything everything has happened for you, not to you, in a way.
1: That's exactly right. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, so, that's fantastic. It's a good it's a good way to be, you know. I guess if you if you live in regret, there's um gonna be a bit of unhappiness there in, in some way or the other. Or you're too busy thinking about the past, mm-hmm. not about the four thoroughbreds out there in the paddock.
1: That's exactly right. Yes,
0: yeah. We have a wonderful evening, Laurie, and can't wait to see you again soon.
1: All right, will do, Charlie. Thank you very much. It's been fun.